I think, you know, it's, it's about personal test and personal freedom. You really wear and enjoy what you like, regardless of what you think people will think of you or the way they're going to look at you. So I think it's a fantastic, you know, evolution. It's just something that I enjoy. So wearing a brooch, wearing rings, be them, you know, originally masculine or feminine. I think it's really about personal pleasure. To me, that's uh, really something that I look at one of the important evolutions that we are facing and which is a great satisfaction. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. When I close my eyes and think about a jewelry brand that is synonymous with classical beauty, sophistication, and a kind of universal appeal that crosses cultures and generations, I think of the French house of Van Cleef and Arpels. What started with a marriage in 1895, more on that later, Van Cleef has continually built its reputation by not simply being in vogue, but based on a heritage of innovation that really found its stride during the pre-war period, notably the 1933 invention of the mystery set that allowed Van Cleef to create otherworldly pieces where stones appear to float like they haven't been set at all. Imagine a brooch in the shape of a flower where petals are bursting with tiny rubies or feathers made from shimmering diamonds. Or you might know the brand for its Alhambra line of pendants, rings, necklaces, and bracelets in a string of its iconic clover-shaped design. Today, the house is part of the Richemont group that includes Cartier, Panerai, Chloe, and Dunhill. And Van Cleef, or VCA for short, has more than 100 stores around the world. Most remarkable to this grand tourist is how the brand has remained so true to itself and its heritage, while never falling out of step with the times. In the modern age, that's probably due in part to my guest today, Nicola Boss, the president and CEO of Van Cleef, who has been with the house since 2000 and CEO since 2013. Instead of coming from a sales or a management background per se, his career has been culturally and creatively driven. He was at the Cartier Foundation for Contemporary Art before joining the company, and since then he's championed long-term projects that have solidified VCA as anything but a wilting lily like its ongoing support of a dance festival called Dance Reflections that comes to New York this fall, and the company's own jewelry school in Paris. I've had the privilege of interviewing the debonair Nicola a few times over the years, and he's always something of a North Star for the industry, bringing a cautious sense of can-do to a realm of design where tastes have to be as precisely calibrated as, well, one of their stunning creations. I caught up with Nicola from his company's headquarters in the heart of Paris to discuss the future of jewelry, the impact of gender-neutral attitudes in the business today, his love of the film Barbarella, and their latest collection with quite possibly the greatest name ever chosen. Uh, well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, I'd, I'd love to just start, um, you know, at the beginning of of, uh, of your career because you, you found your way to the, to the Cartier Foundation for Contemporary Art. And what kind of projects did you undertake there? And, you know, looking back on those moments, maybe what what part of that uh, job for you prepared you for your future uh, life here at Van Cleef? I think that that start at the Cartier Foundation was for me a really uh, almost life-defining period. Um, I dreamt when I was younger to work in a, in a cultural or artistic environment. For many reasons, uh, I went into more business studies, and then I still, you know, dreamt of working in an environment that would at least uh, associate uh, business and culture and art. 
So maybe working, you know, within a publishing house or uh, something of that nature. And I got that uh, lucky opportunity to uh, start an internship at the Cartier Foundation for Contemporary Art. At the time, there were very, very few private institutions that were dealing with art uh, in France. It's a very public uh, affair in France, art and culture. Um, and it was just the dream environment because it was part of a private company. There was a logic that was somehow business because it was uh, run by uh, you know, a, a company that had to do with communications, with marketing, with uh, commercial development. But it was a true artistic institution uh, with a, a team that was actually coming from art galleries, public museums, and that was really running uh, exhibitions and, uh, and uh, artistic programs. And I remember that one of the first exhibitions I had the opportunity to work on uh, was an exhibition that was dedicated to the, the history of the representation of the face in art. It was called A Visage Découvert, Face Off. It was in 92. Um, and it was one of the very first visible uh, thematic exhibition in France, uh, really, you know, associating uh, prehistoric uh, objects, um, you know, middle age representation, uh, contemporary art, of course, uh, painting, photography, and so on, which was quite unusual uh, at the time. Now was it controversial in a way? Not really controversial, but uh, art is very uh, compartmented in this country uh, and was. Uh, so just to mix, you know, uh, objects, elements, artworks from very, very different periods, different cultures was not so usual. If you, you know, Middle Age belonged to the Middle Age Museum and, you know, uh, Egyptian art belonged to the Louvre and contemporary art belonged to uh, Pompidou Center. But to mix them was uh, not really controversial, but uh, a bit unusual. Um, and for me, it was a fantastic eye-opener uh, to so many categories uh, of art and culture and to the idea of working around uh, a theme that can be uh, pretty straightforward, pretty simple as the face, uh, and then developing a whole project uh, and curating and orchestrating an exhibition. So I was not curator, uh, of course, uh, but it was a small team uh, and we are all very close friends. So uh, I was you know, given the opportunity to work with uh, some artists, some curators very directly. Um, and it was really a moment where I felt that uh, I had found, in a way, a kind of a home where I could, uh, you know, mix uh, business. I was, you know, working on the, you know, uh, financial accounts and, uh, you know, uh, development of um, of the bookstore and the, this type of things. Uh, but at the same time, uh, really uh, learning every day and meeting uh, artists and creators. And was the was the exhibition successful? It was yeah, very successful, yeah. and then there were many uh, after this one, um, and. Probably it's still something that is very important to me today. Even in the way we work, you know, 30 years after, uh, every year when we uh, create a collection of high jewelry, principle, the process is to uh, identify a theme, a story, a source of inspiration, to share it with the team, and then to develop a whole project that will go, uh, you know, over a few months, one year, uh, inspired by that theme. And that theme can be... Uh, the you know the novels of Jules Verne or uh, certain stones, emeralds or rubies, or uh, it can be uh, the stars at night or uh, oceans. But it's always that idea of uh, of gathering uh, creations around one single element and creating a consistent uh, experience uh, while associating uh, you know more individual uh, art expression in a way. And kind of universal themes 
in, in, a, in a sense. Yes, very much so. And it's very important because it's true. Uh, one thing I really appreciated, but maybe I didn't even fully understand at the time, is that it was an approach with no hierarchy. So uh, some of this, uh, the theme was very universal. Some of the artworks can be, uh, could be extremely, um, you know, simple in a way and uh, accessible. Some of them a bit more conceptual and maybe required more uh, knowledge and background. But this idea of exhibition is that you can come with whatever level of culture and knowledge and you will still enjoy it. Uh, and this is something that uh, I really you know, still feel strongly about, uh, the fact that there is no hierarchy between uh, forms of culture. So I love you know, very popular science fiction movies and comic books. Uh, and I love also some very uh, academic, you know, uh, history uh, uh, or, uh, you know, art history text. Famous, uh, what is your favorite science fiction film? Um, two of them. Uh, Forbidden Planet. Oh, of course, the, the animated, the, the French animated one? No, no, the, the first American one by Maddox, ah. Ah, uh, okay. 1953 or four. Ah, okay. Um, the Forbidden Planet. This is where uh, Robbie the Robot appears for the first time. Oh, okay. It's actually uh, based on uh, Shakespeare's The Tempest. Okay. Uh, it was usually uh, popular. And oh, then oh. Uh, the representation of robots in the movies is coming actually from that. And one of the first uh, techno um, soundtracks. Oh, I see. Uh, wow. A very early uh, electronic music in the 50s. Uh, and another one that I love is uh, Barbara Barbarella. Of course. Uh, the no. Roger Vadim French movie for different reasons. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> very, very, of course. Um, and Star Wars. I mean, uh, you, first first movie I saw, you know, that's also defining, you know, yeah. I was seven when I went to the movie theater to see the first Star Wars and uh, still a very, very vi vivid memory. That's yeah. pretty much my generation. What is the uh, the French title for Star Wars here? La Guerre des Étoiles. Uh, okay, of course. <laughs> um, and, and when you joined... Van Cleef, the brand had recently been uh, acquired by uh, Richemont. Can you take us back to maybe the industry at that time? Um, you know, what was, if you were to say in a, in a book of history, what the world of, of fine jewelry was at the time when you joined Van Cleef, like a snapshot in time, what would, what would, the, world, what would the, the jewelry world be like then? Most of the great jewelry houses that used to be uh, family companies, family-run companies, were still in the hands of the, com of the families or had been sold very recently. So if you look you know, around the Place Vendôme, um, Chaumet, Boucheron, Van Cleef and Apples, Mauboussin, uh, they were really exactly at that time in the same process, whether they'd been sold you know, in the past few years or they were going to be sold. But it was a time where a few brands, and probably Cartier was the most prominent one, um, had really um, managed to associate the tradition of jewelry with uh, commercial development and, let's say, international marketing. And they'd been very successful. And a lot of the family-run companies were at a moment where they couldn't necessarily follow that pace of development while remaining family-run businesses. Um, and so a lot of them decided to sell. It's also very often the case, you know, with a third, fourth generation uh, family-run businesses. Some of the family, mem family members want to sell. Some of them want to stay. They don't necessarily have the same views uh, on how to develop the brand. Uh, plus, you can have some, you know, family stuff <laughs> that's going on um, so it was a very interesting uh, time because yes, some brands like uh, Cartier were really 
following uh, what was at the time the, the early development of the world of luxury, uh, be it fashion, accessories, and jewelry, and watches were part of it. Uh, but it was still early. It was not at all the, the scale and the scope that we see today. Um, and some brands like Van Cleef and Apples and our close neighbors on Place Vendôme were, you know, engaging on that process. Um, and so when um, I joined uh, Van Cleef and Apples, I was really part of the of the team that was uh, put here in a way by the management of Richemont to somehow write the next chapter uh, and that uh, transitioning from uh, almost a century. Uh, of a family-run business. Uh, it was a very, very uh, interesting uh, approach. It's uh, really how do you uh, you know, embrace the new opportunities, the development of uh, international luxury, uh, while keeping what has made this brand so successful um, and turn them into uh, respected references in our world. So keeping the identity, keeping the level of craftsmanship, keeping the attention to quality, um, but before keeping them, it meant understanding them because a lot of things, you know, over one century become quite implicit. Uh, so it's not something that's written. You know, they tell you, I remember uh, the stones, of course, this is the Van Cleef and Apple's quality. You say, okay, but how do we define that? Uh, you know, the traditions in the workshop, how do you, uh, do you first understand them uh, in order to be able to explain them to uh, newcomers or to uh, clients or editors? So there was a great deal of uh, of research of you know working uh, in the archive, talking with members of the family, uh, with uh, you know salespeople or craftsmen that had been there for a very long time, or designers to understand what for them, uh, because it was their daily life, what for them was this identity, so that we could um, let's say uh, uh, isolate uh, some dimensions that were probably more distinctive. Uh, and that could be what we would decide to um, redevelop in the future, um, aesthetically. Um, you know, even in terms of the philosophy of the brand, was there you know so, so certain values that were particularly important. Um, and um, and yes, that led us to uh, really do this kind of thorough uh, you know analysis, trying, and it was very very important for me and for the whole team and and the management at the time. Uh, not to break anything, if I may. So not to, to create a revolution, uh, but really to ensure continuity while at the same time uh, working on uh, a redevelopment. That was what the Richmond Group was uh, actually hoping for. Before we return to Nicola, a word from our sponsor, Anne Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Anne Sachs. The brand opened its Portland, Oregon factory 30 years ago, realizing a vision to produce the finest handcrafted tile, showcasing modern, timeless design. Anne Sachs' latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs, a key element to the design of any kitchen, bathroom counter, shower surround, or if you're lucky, home bar. With the company's incredible experience as a foundation, Anne Sachs is offering a curated assortment of the world's most premium stones, stone mosaics, and accompanying slabs, as well as dimensional stones. And this September, the company will open its third slab gallery in New York's Long Island City, after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. At these incredible one-stop destinations, you'll be able to work hand-in-hand with their design associates on everything surface-related. For more information about any Anne Sachs tile or stone, or to find a showroom near you, 
visit www.ansax.com. And if you were to go to a, 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 somehow, if you were to go to a party and someone came up to you and said, I have never heard of Van Cleef before, uh, what is it? How would you, how would you describe the company from a, you know, from a total standstill, from, from ground zero? There are still a lot of people that have never heard of what happened. <laughs> okay. So actually, I, I'm quite happy to really? answer that. that yes, yes, okay. still, still. <laughs> of course, you know, it's not everybody knows or is interested in in jewelry, and sure. uh, and it's a, it's a very big world. So how do you answer? Um, it's one of the traditional jewelers uh, that have developed over the 20th century uh, high jewelry in France. Uh, so it's a uh, house, a maison, as we say usually, um, that has developed since its creation in 1906, a very specific style, very specific craftsmanship, uh, a way uh, to design and craft uh, jewelry uh, in a singular manner. And then uh, if that person has more time, I'm happy to uh, you know, dive a bit into that and explain uh, what it stands for. And, and can you tell us how the, how the house began originally? Uh, sort of a, a truncated version <laughs> of, I'm sure, what is a very long story. Um, nicely enough, it began, you know, from a, a love story and a wedding. Uh, so, you know, for a jewelry house, it's always quite a, a good start. Um, and the name Van Clef and Apples is really very simply coming from the wedding uh, of Estelle Apples and Alfred Van Clef. So uh, they united their uh, their destinies and they uh, associated their names to create a company. They were both coming from uh, uh, families of merchants uh, that had uh, migrated to uh, Europe in the 19th century. Um, and then they started that company in Place Vendôme. Um, at the time, and it's quite interesting. What year was this? Oh, so it was 1906. Ah, okay. So they got married, uh, I think, in 1895 and uh, started the company together in 1906. And it was one of the early uh, jewelry houses and luxury companies uh, to open retail uh, that was accessible from the street. Uh, something that's obvious today, but uh, in the 19th century, uh, jewelers were working usually uh, upstairs, you know, in private uh, mansions uh, by appointment for, you know, a clientele of, uh, you know, elite aristocracy, uh, great, you know, important families. Um, and the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century uh, is really the opening of retail as we know it and the opening of um, certain forms of tourism. And at that time, uh, Paris is quite the center of the world in terms of uh, style and culture. Uh, the Ritz, uh, the hotel has just opened a few years before. Where was the first store? That That's on Place Vendôme. Ah, okay. So really at the center of Paris, historical center, uh, across from the Ritz Hotel. Um, and this is really where uh, not only the traditional European clientele, but more and more uh, Americans, um, Russians, uh, South Americans, people from all around the world, uh, come to uh, enjoy the city, to enjoy the art, art galleries, uh, to meet with uh, uh, fashion designers, uh, jewelers. Uh, it's a very uh, cool and hip uh, place to be. Um, and this is really where they start their, their company. And 
I think from the very beginning, they associate um, a real attention to uh, quality and craftsmanship. So they develop really their expertise and their workshops, um, a specific style that they really want to develop. And interestingly, probably in the first 10, 20 years of the Maison, everything has been defined in terms of style, uh, everything that we still follow today. And they also associate that with a real sense of commercial development. So very early, in particular with the help of the brothers of uh, Estelle Apples, uh, they develop um, subsidiaries, they develop uh, other stores um, with the idea of following their clients uh, where they go. So going to uh, uh, what were at the time luxury resorts in a way. Uh, but it was still very uh, new uh, at that time to develop that. And were, were the products that they were selling because it was a storefront were the products of the day different from what other people were offering? I think they really started with uh, more uh, traditional, you know, uh, pieces. Uh, so very elegant, well-crafted uh, jewelry pieces, uh, exceptional stones, pearls. At the time, Paris was the capital of, uh, of pearls and probably pearls were more important than diamonds. Um, and very, very quickly, they developed a specific style um, that probably has to do with the spirit of the time. Uh, so 19... 06, 1910, uh, decorative arts in, in Paris and France are very much under the influence of uh, the rediscovery of uh, Asian arts. Uh, this is the period of uh, Japanism. Uh, so uh, Japanese, Korean, Chinese art, uh, representation of nature are very important. We are uh, at the end of the Art Nouveau uh, period. Um, so they're going from a more uh, naturalistic approach uh, to a sli sli slightly more stylized and abstract approach that's going to be the art deco uh, style so you can feel all these elements as uh, let's say the founding you know dimensions of that style um, and very very early also they start to work with uh, colored stones um, and they develop uh, quite a strong um, inventiveness uh, that's going to lead them in the 1920s, 1930s. Is that uh, where the mystery setting comes exactly, from? Exactly, yes. I was going to that. That's uh, in the 1930s. Uh, and the mystery setting is typically, uh, in a way, the result of uh, technical research, uh, which is how to make the metal disappear when you are setting stones. Okay, so if you could describe maybe something that would have a classic piece that would have the mystery setting to someone who's listening. Like With a, pleasure, yeah, like a flower um, or yes. Yeah. Let's let's imagine a flower. Uh, let's imagine a, a peony. Um, if you look at the flower in nature, the petals are one single color, so you only see the color standing out. When you work in jewelry and you work with color, you work with color stones. And the the very nature of jewelry is actually to set stones into metal. And the more delicate, the more figurative, the more uh, sophisticated the piece, the less apparent the metal because you want the shape of that petal, the shape of that flower to be everything that stands out and you don't want the structure to be visible. But of course, you still need the metal to hold the, the, the stones. And the idea of mystery setting is to look at it from a different perspective and not to hold the stone by the top, but to hold the stone by the back and to create a whole structure, a whole grid, that actually has exactly the shape of that peony flower, the shape of each and every petal, made of tiny rails in uh, yellow gold, in uh, uh, sorry, red gold at the time. Um, and on these rails, you slide little squares that have been cut into rubies. 
And once you've slid all your little rubies on the grid, the grid completely disappears. It's just holding these rubies from the back. And you only see a surface, a volume of rubies. And that petal is purely red. Uh, and you have a rendering of the flower like never before because you don't see any apparent metal. And this was really uh, something uh, quite uh, new and different uh, at the time in jewelry, and it has remained quite uh, an important signature for the workshop still today. And speaking today, how many people, how many craftsmen work at, at Van Cleef? Uh, today, there's about uh, a bit more than 100 craftsmen that are working in our two internal workshops in Paris and in Lyon. Uh, and then a few hundred more that are working in independent workshops uh, that we've been working with, some of them uh, for two or three generations. Uh, and it's a whole ecosystem uh, of fine jewelry in France that we are working with. Mm. And the Alhambra collection is sort of wildly s successful and iconic and also very widely copied, as I'm sure, as I'm sure you know, <laughs> yes. uh, and and sort of part of the house's legacy. And for those uh, who are uninitiated, who don't know the Alhambra, can you explain how that design came to be? It's a very interesting story in the history of, of jewelry and the history of Antlafon Apple. So it's a, a design that was originally uh, launched in 1968, so more than 50 years ago. Um, and it's uh, actually originally a long necklace, a sautoir, Uh, which represents an alignment, a series of motifs that are carved in ornamental stones. So it can be in onyx or in tiger's eye or in coral or in mother of pearl. Uh, each motif is in the shape of a quatrefoil. So it's a, a stylized, a slightly abstract version of a four-leaf clover, uh, which is also a motif that you can find sometimes in architecture if you think of the Middle Age, for instance, or the Renaissance period. So it's a pretty universal motif, but here, given a very, very specific translation, injury, and with the association of the value of luck, uh, which, is, uh, which goes with the four-leaf clover. And these uh, different motifs are set into gold with a very specific setting, which is made of little gold beads. So the setting itself is pretty uh, unique. And they are positioned along a chain uh, to create a long necklace. So it's interesting uh, if you look at the time, because this is really at the crossroad of the tradition of high jewelry and fine jewelry, the quality of stones, the setting, uh, the way it's been built, uh, and the spirit of the time, which was very much inspired uh, by you know Indian jewelry. It was the whole uh, you know rediscovery the late 1960s of uh, you know Oriental Indian style that could go into the more, you know, hippie, uh, of course, uh, look and movement. But there was a kind of a luxury version of that, um, of that spirit. Um, and um, it's uh, to hydrury what uh, the early ready-to-wear, if you think of Yves Saint Laurent, for instance, was uh, becoming at the time uh, to haute couture. So uh, it's the same technique, the same philosophy, the same attention to detail as in high jewelry, but applied to slightly more simple motifs uh, and simple pieces so that you can develop it uh, at a more affordable uh, price point 
and you can uh, produce small quantities instead of only unique pieces. Um, and it was very emblematic of that spirit. Uh, and this is exactly the same years uh, where some of the very early uh, ready-to-wear collections uh, start to develop in fashion. Um, and you can see immediately, 1968-70, uh, that that piece is uh, understood as the perfect complement to this new uh, silhouette, this new uh, evolution of, uh, of fashion and, uh, and costume of the time. And uh, we are talking at the beginning of uh, you know the, the, the absence of hierarchy. Uh, once again, it's a universal motif, um, can speak to uh, everyone. Uh, it comes in different colors, uh, it comes in different lengths, and it will remain, uh, and it has remained so far, uh, one of the, let's say, uh, most uh, iconic or uh, the most uh, transversal pieces of jewelry. And it's quite interesting when we look now at the archive uh, to see that same design, that same piece of jewelry associated with silhouettes from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. So going with uh, very, very different looks, very, very different attitudes, but still quite relevant and a good match. And why do you think that it's still popular today? Like, what do you think? It has its longevity that it kind of never goes out of style. But I think it's a, it's a very um, easy-to-wear piece. Um, it's uh, identified uh, and a signature piece, but without being too, uh, too specific. So you can, once again, wear it with very different outfits. Um, so there is an element of recognition. And of course, you know, when you have uh, some, some luxury objects, if you think, you know, some very uh, famous watches, some very famous sports car, uh, you like also to, to own something that's been part of a history that's been recognized uh, and identified, but without bearing a logo, without bearing a visible name. Just the shape and, uh, and the architecture of the piece uh, make, make it a signature. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, sometimes we, we, we are asked or we ask ourselves, you know, how do you uh, uh, create, uh, you know, an icon or uh, nobody knows. You can just, you know, uh, see afterwards that uh, it seems that uh, the Alhambra collection today in our world of uh, fine jewelry is one of the few uh, they were collections that are uh, probably identified. And since it has remained relevant for more than 50 years, we can have hopes that it's going to remain relevant for some more years. And uh, my next question is, uh, I read that you have children. Do you have, do you have children? Yes, I have two. So as someone who's been in the business for you know a few decades, and obviously you think about your consumer and and who what a woman today wants and, and what she desires. And I'm wondering if you're, how do you see the the woman of the future let's say what will someone in the year 2030 what will a woman who's 30 or 30 years old maybe your children or maybe their friends they grow up what will they look for do you think in in this industry do you have an idea of where the culture of jewelry is going or how people are relating to jewelry i think it changes far less than we think um, of course, the world is changing. Of course, you know, lifestyles and expectations are evolving. I think the relationship to jewelry remains quite strong and quite intimate. Um, it has been the case for uh, a lot of time. I think that uh, one of the earliest earliest piece of jewelry that was found a couple of years ago is uh, more than 140,000 years old. So that's actually, uh, you know, 
a good sign. It has gone through uh, pretty much all cultures, all civilizations, all periods. So we can say that jewelry is really part of many, many lifestyles. That's quite a reassuring factor. Um, and, you know, talking to some, you know, young uh, women, young ladies or men uh, these days, uh, they still uh, appreciate, you know, uh, precious uh, jewelry. They still appreciate symbols. They still appreciate, you know, the quality, the exclusivity. Um, and so I don't see that uh, disappearing or changing. What we need, of course, to continue to uh, to make evolve and to follow is how do we talk about that? So uh, how, you know, how do we advertise? How do we tell the story? Uh, there are probably dimensions today that are more important when we talk about sustainability and the sourcing and uh, what, you know, commercial companies are, are giving back to society. Probably uh, we are talking now to an audience that's more sensitive to that. Um, but the piece itself, you know, the pleasure to uh, to receive it, the pleasure to wear it, uh, the fact that, you know, that bracelet, that necklace is something precious uh, that's going to last forever uh, because of the materials, because of the way it has been made. It's still something that I think that has a very, very uh, strong power of attraction and pretty much, you know, uh, across the regions and across the, the cultures. And I'm curious, you know, you mentioned men also, and I'm sh curious what your take on like this new uh, era of sort of gender neutral fashion and how it's becoming seemingly more and more as years go by. Um what we used to call like gender bending is now just sort of gender neutral. Um, as you know, you're, I, I have a brooch on, uh, you're wearing some rings, but they're men's rings. But I'm curious, like, what do you think about this new era where you might go out and see a guy decide to wear more jewelry, more women's jewelry or whatever, or this kind of new part of fashion that we, people keep talking about more and more? I think it's great. Honestly, I think, you know, it's, it's about personal taste and personal freedom. And the fact that uh, you really wear and uh, enjoy what you like, regardless of what you think people will think of you or the way they're going to look at you. So I think it's a fantastic, you know, evolution. Um, and I think it has to do with the the quality of the of the piece or the intrinsic, you know, uh, value of the piece. Well, want to say which is quite interesting and I think a great evolution not even commercially just you know, you know from a social standpoint um, if you look at a collection like Alhambra for instance uh, I see and we see more and more men wearing it uh, but not a more masculine or a more abstract or a bolder version of the Alhambra just the piece itself uh, which honestly we didn't see 10-15 years ago a lot of you know men would uh, enjoy the piece, find it beautiful, but would not think of wearing it. And now they say, I love it. I find it beautiful. Yeah, I find it beautiful on me as well. Uh, and doesn't mean I am this or that, or you have that sexuality, or you have that, you know, lifestyle. It's just something that I enjoy. So wearing a brooch, wearing rings, be them, you know, originally masculine or feminine. I think it's really about personal pleasure. So uh, to me, that's uh, really something that... I look at one of the important evolutions that we are facing and which is a great satisfaction. Um, are you selling more men's jewelry? As we are selling on? more of our jewelry to men without having to create men's jewelry. Ah, okay. And uh, we are, you know, given the style and the identity of the maison, every time we, we tried in the past to create men's jewelry, it was a complicated exercise because, you know, if we go, you know, abstract, big shape, geometric, this is not so much what Van Cleef and Apples is about. 
Uh, I'm super, super happy to see a man wearing a pearl earring or an Alhambra bracelet. So that's uh, that's an interesting evolution. And if you look at you know history, there were more periods even in Europe where men were wearing more jewelry than women. So it's only in the last you know 150 years that uh, that vision has developed that uh, jewelry is for women. You look uh, you know 18th century or before, men were covered uh, in jewelry. So I'm quite glad that we're coming back to that. Why do you think that? Why do you think men lost that? What was was it a like a an industrial or like a machine, like a technology thing that men, like the typewriter, I don't know. I'm just curious, like, well, that would, I don't know. Why, why do you think that shifted when men stopped wearing jewelry? It had to, it had to do a lot with the uh, evolutions of religion and society mm. um, in the 19th century. Uh, the idea of, you know, uh, breaking from the, at least in France or in, uh, you know, uh, Western Europe, breaking for things that were associated with the old regime and aristocracy, uh, and also a view that uh, it was frivolous uh, to be wearing, you know, uh, visible signs of, of jewelry. So it's something that has to do with morals. If you look at the late 19th century, men that wear jewelry are the, the likes of, you know, the symbolist or Oscar Wilde. Uh, artists, uh, they are a bit the people outside of society where they used to be uh, really at the heart of it. So I think it was more a moral thing than uh, an aesthetic choice. Before we return to Nicola, a word from our partner, Polyform. With its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design-driven products that outfit nearly every inch of the modern home. From its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and a mastery of Italian style, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd expect from a company headquartered in Brianza, near Lake Como. As the grand tourist is always shopping for his next remodel or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. The Cohesive Curve Collection by Emmanuel Galina solves a problem for anyone designing a truly modern home. Many icons of the mid-20th century were created one at a time and sometimes lack a sense of harmony when put together in a room with a strong architectural character. The Curve Collection, consisting of a dining table, bed, and chair, solved this problem by whispering good designs instead of shouting. The table has a stunning wood crosspiece that can be upholstered in leather, and the bed and chairs with optional footrest can be completely changed with its fabric choices such as pinstripes, a nubby wool, elegant solids, and more sartorial choices. For more information about the Curve Collection and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. And can you can you explain the sort of not life cycle but the sort of creative cycle from concept to release of, of a jewelry collection? Like what is that what is that process, that creative process like in the studio? It's a pretty simple process. If I'm thinking, for instance, of the high jewelry collections, uh, it's in general a three-year process between you know the, the time we decide on the theme. Um, so, for instance, we're going to do a, 
a collection that's going to be dedicated to uh, the Brother Grimm's uh, fairy tales. Uh, then it's about, you know, six months, one year, where everybody's doing their own, you know, research. So reading the tales, you know, looking at all the ways they've been, you know, interpreted uh, over time. So that's true for the studio, but also, once again, from uh, for experts of the different, you know, teams, marketing teams, also communications. Um, and then, you know, we start to sketch Uh, we give some directions how we want to organize the collection but that's mostly based on the history what has been successful less successful what we feel is expected what we hear also from clients that sometimes they would you know appreciate more you know a wider bracelet or more simple necklaces that of course plays a role um, and then progressively we build we refine the, the drawings until you know from the early sketches we come to very uh, final detailed drawings at the same time we uh, we begin to work on feasibility so finding the The stones, uh, you know, developing the, the craftsmanship that's going to go alongside the different projects. And we think also about the environment in which we want to, to launch a collection because for us, it has to be, and it's coming back away to the idea of the thematic exhibition, it has to be a, a, an overall um, um, immersive experience. So everybody's talking about immersive experience these days, but it's been, you know, what we try to do for a long time. So if you launch a, a collection on the... Green Brother fairy tale. Mm -hmm. You want to launch it in a in a place that makes sense. Um, for instance, this one was a few years ago. We launched it in a palace in Vienna. You want to work with uh, you know uh, designers, with fashion designers for the way you're going to present uh, the jewelry and models. You want to create you know an atmosphere, uh, you know music, a certain uh, theatrical ambiance around the presentation. Uh, you want to uh, create a whole book about the collection that's going to be also uh, a reminder of the theme. So it's uh, pretty much the whole company uh, that starts, you know, to uh, to work uh, with that uh, background of uh, the Brother Grimm's. And then the following year, it's going to be, uh, you know, the Seven Seas. And uh, the year after, it's going to be uh, Emeralds. And that's also a great way um, to renew the approach um, and to feed creativity because you never repeat Uh, a process since the origin of it and the source of inspiration is always of a different nature. Do you find it in today's age of social media and lots of different ways of communicating? Is it more difficult now? Or is it more challenging or at least to kind of communicate these new uh, collections or in a way, is it more freeing because you can um, maybe not as restrictive in the past, you know, 20 years ago, there was, newspapers, magazines, and television, and that was basically a radio, and that was it. So is is it, do you find it more challenging now or more creative in a way? Like, I think it's a bit of both. I think um, it's many more opportunities, as you say. I mean, we have now many more medias, many more uh, platforms where we can tell a story, and that's uh, really a blessing. It takes three years to build a collection. Maybe uh, sometimes it takes, uh, you know, five or 10 years to develop an object. If I think of uh, automatons, for instance, the pace of social media is right now. Uh, so if we try to follow that, I think we kind of lose our soul. Um, so uh, the challenge is uh, well, to stay at the right distance, uh, to use them, you know, as another vehicle that we can uh, benefit from, but not to... Uh, Uh, to become a kind of slave uh, to that rhythm or to that uh, appetite for more images, more, uh, you know, more elements. So, for instance, you know, 
because it's not what we do. We don't work with celebrities. We don't work with influencers. There are a lot of things that we don't do, although they appear to be a part of you know what brands are supposed to do these days. But if we don't feel they are relevant to uh, our collections, then we just you know don't go there. But it doesn't mean that we are not going to use another aspect of social media uh, that is great for us. And why don't you work with celebrities? I'm curious. Um, because I'm still very nostalgic to, of the time where celebrities were clients and they were placing special orders and uh, Malen Dietrich or others were coming, you know, and working with the designers to create some of the most beautiful pieces in our history. So now to uh, be in a system that's purely commercial where, uh, you know, you have to, uh, you know, pay them. And I mean, it doesn't mean that we don't have, you know, good friends among, you know, artists and actresses and actors. Um, but it doesn't seem that something that uh, relates to Montclair and Apples. It's probably, uh, I think you should do things, you know, once again for a reason. So uh, if we were very, very close to the world of movies, for instance, uh, and there are some brands that are, and then it would make a lot of sense to be present, you know, and maybe there are new ways to be present and it's more commercial than it was before. But since it's not our world, uh, we don't feel that uh, we have to go by that. So we prefer to uh, to work more on, you know, exhibitions or education or uh, or to continue to print books. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as even though jewelry is an art form, um, it's also kind of a method of communication for for women. What do you what do you personally want a Van Cleef and Arpel creation to communicate in the year 2023? <laughs> so now I can't believe I'm saying it's 2023. <laughs> yes, but it's, it is. it's kind of strange. Yes. Um, but I think, you know, it, it, of course, it says something about the person who wears it. So uh, I think it says that, you know, you have a, a certain taste for, uh, you know, slightly uh, understated, um, refined pieces uh, that, you know, you, you like a, a certain uh, inspiration from nature. Uh, that you like uh, sometimes a certain lightness, uh, a certain uh, sense of humor also that's present in quite a lot of our pieces. Um, and that you see jewelry as, you know, an expression of, uh, yes, of, of, I don't know, sophistication is not the right word, but, uh, um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's an expression of, of beauty um, as opposed to, uh, something that jewelry can be, an expression of power, an expression of uh, strength. You know, there are some brands that are very much about that and I like them very much for what they are. This is not so much what we are. So uh, even if you look at the, you know, the, the, the way we look at nature and animals, the animals that you will find at Van Cleef and Apples, they are very often, you know, lights, you know, there are birds, there are dragonflies, butterflies, or if there are lions or elephants, they are very cute, almost as, they are, as if they are coming from a cartoon. Uh, so they, they don't say, you know, I'm strong, I'm powerful. Uh, they say, you know, uh, I like, you know, a, a bit of fun and, and lightness. Okay. No, uh, no black widow spiders or anything. No, like that. no, okay, no. Yes. <laughs> uh, and one of your latest high jewelry collections called Legend of Diamonds. Uh, can you, uh, you know, it works with a rough stone, which I think is rare for, for, for the house. Can you explain how this collection came about and. Yes, with pleasure. Um, we, as I was saying, you know, we, we like to take a starting point for a collection. And sometimes it has to do with stories. Sometimes it has to do with technique. And sometimes it has to do with stones. Um, and we've done a few collections on, uh, on stones, one on emeralds, one on rubies. 
Um, and of course, you know, we wanted for a very long time to do a collection on diamonds. Um, but in diamonds, at a very uh, high level of quality, you don't find the diversity that you have in emeralds or rubies, for instance. Um, so the starting point of that story was an opportunity we had to work, as you were saying, from an exceptional rough diamond. And what is a rough diamond, if you could explain? A rough diamond is really what you find uh, in a diamond mine. So... Um, a diamond mine is really, uh, you know, uh, inside a mountain. Uh, it's a volcanic, you know, uh, um, environment where uh, millions of years ago, some uh, um, carbon has crystallized uh, in the shape of diamonds. Um, and there was uh, an exceptionally large uh, white diamond, about nine, 910 carats, that was found uh, in a mine in Lesotho. Um, which is a mine that uh, usually uh, produces exceptional quality diamonds. Uh, and we got the opportunity to really work from that stone from the very beginning, which is not something that we do usually. We, uh, we work from uh, already polished and uh, cut stones. Uh, but here it was an opportunity to create a whole collection from that same rough. Uh, and it's true that in, in today's world where the idea of traceability, sustainability are quite key, especially... Uh, when it comes to uh, precious stones. It was also a very interesting journey uh, to go to the mine, to follow exactly you know, that stone from its very physical origin to uh, the way it was integrated then uh, into pieces of jewelry. So we work from that rough. Um, then, of course, we work with uh, diamond experts, dealers, diamond cutters, uh, to make uh, the best of that rough. Uh, and something that was new for us is that instead of buying existing uh, cut stones, uh, we could decide with the stone cutter exactly uh, how many stones we wanted, what were the shapes, you know, how many pairs, how many single stones. So we kind of designed the collection of stones in order to design the collection of jewels. Uh, and then out of this collection, we created 25 exceptional pieces associating these diamonds from that rough with the technique of mystery setting in rubies, emerald, or sapphires. So it was really a signature technique associated with this unusual stone. Um, and it was uh, yes, a one-of-a-kind uh, collection for us and a one-of-a-kind exercise also uh, to be working along the whole um, story of the stone from the very beginning to the very end and even working with some uh, laboratories uh, to have, and it's still uh, very uh, unusual, although it's something I think that will develop, to have a certification that indicates not only the physical qualities of the stone, but also their origin, the mine of origin, and that can retell really you exactly where they've been extracted, who has cut them, where they've been sold. So you have that full uh, history, full cycle that you can follow. Ah, okay. And the world of jewelry recently lost uh, an artist, Daniel Brush, uh, who passed away last year. Um, and you you wrote a, a preface to his monograph a few years ago. Can you share a bit about him and 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 what made him such a creative force? Daniel was really a, an outstanding character. He was trained a jeweler. Um, he was practicing jewelry at a level of of quality of attention to detail that I don't believe I've ever seen elsewhere. Um, and he was using, uh, in a way, his, his uh, competence, his skills uh, of jeweler uh, to create objects of poetry and magic. Uh, and then, you know, he was more a kind of an alchemist in a way than than a jeweler. He was creating the the most 
you know, sophisticated, the, the lightest objects with the hardest materials. He was setting stones into steel and aluminium, which is almost impossible, doing that all by himself, creating his own alloys in his studio uh, downtown New York. Um, he was influenced um, as much by uh, popular culture, you know, old toys, as he was by uh, uh, Japanese poetry and theater or uh, abstract impressionism. Uh, actually, his work reminded me uh, a lot of the work of uh, yes, Barnett Newman and, and that generation, which he, he loved. Um, He was a man of incredible culture, and and w so we worked. I mean, he had worked with Van Cleef and Arpels in the 80s. I met him about 10 years ago. Uh, we've developed a few projects uh, with him, and the School for Jewelry Art we've, uh, exhibited his work uh, and worked on a few uh, um, editions. Um, and, and to me, he's uh, an extraordinary character because uh, he, he was at the crossroads of so many traditions, Um, and he was using the highest level of, of technique to go beyond it uh, and to uh, create pieces that were almost impossible by you know, traditional standards. Um, and a fantastic guy to be uh, to be around, and his his place uh, in New York looked like the, the you know I think that even a, you know the, the the most crazy directors wouldn't think of uh, a space like that you know as a background for the movie so i think uh, yeah it's going to be missed and uh, one of my last questions is i was asked to, to ask you about your upcoming collection in may uh if you could speak about it which of course this will come out after it's released hopefully so if not we'll cut it um so can you can you explain a little bit about this upcoming collection um yeah so the, the this new collection that we are launching and actually is going to be a publicly launched in june um is inspired by the grand tour so uh oh hey, hey, how, okay. how come on <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, i see there's a book next to us that says that's the actually, age of the grand tour yes. okay there are quite a few behind you um and uh, yes it's always been a very very fascinating subject to me uh lots of books about it lots of ex exhibitions about it um and um it's really that idea of uh you know how travel was a way to form your uh, artistic education and to form your education. So uh, going back to the 17th, 18th century, uh, it was uh, this tour of Europe uh, that originally uh, English, uh, you know, young people of, of, let's say, wealthy families, but then, you know, more Europeans would uh, would do. So starting very often from, uh, from London, going to... Uh, France, um, Germany, Switzerland to see the Alps, and then of course Italy, and it was then the, the whole uh, you know beginning of uh, um, the Italian tour, um, and then Venice, Firenze, Roma, Napoli, um, and all these uh, young people that would sometime you know uh, travel for uh, one or two years. Uh, would of course, you know, go and see uh, monuments, artworks, uh, and discover or rediscover um, antique times or antique Rome, uh, obviously medieval uh, architecture and Renaissance painting, among others. Uh, and that would influence, of course, all the writings uh, and paintings of the 18th, 19th century. Uh, the idea of romanticism, uh, the rediscovery of uh, runes, Um, and uh, there is something very, very uh, fascinating there. Uh, and so we decided to dedicate this collection to that uh, rediscovery of the Grand Tour, what it meant at the time, uh, the different places uh, it included, 
and the way it represented it. Um, and the Grand Tour itself was a very strong inspiration for jewelry um, in the 19th century, for instance, uh, with the rediscovery of Roman, Etruscan and Renaissance jewelry that influenced a lot uh, our predecessors. So uh, it's this journey uh, through uh, Europe that we're going to invite you to uh, okay. in a few weeks. Okay, amazing. And uh, how many pieces are in this collection? There's going about. to be around uh, 80 pieces uh, in the overall collection. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, anything? How are they? How do they express the Grand Tour? How how does it, in terms of shape or? They express the Grand Tour very uh, in a very straightforward manner. They are really associated with the different uh, places. Uh, okay. So we go from London to Paris to Baden-Baden to the Alps to the different cities in the. In uh, Italy, and we focus on the elements that at the time were um, the best remembered and the most influential. So, uh, that view of the Alps mountain that you might know from a, a Friedrich painting, uh, of course, you know, uh, Venice and the Coliseum in, uh, in Rome, uh, the Bay of, of Napoli, uh, with the, you know, the Vesuvio in the, in the, in the back. Uh, and so we're going to revisit in a way the way they inspired uh painters the way uh, some of these travelers uh captured this memory through watercolors you know in their traveling books uh there were some writers we have a few uh important writers i think like you know goethe Stendhal, you know that uh, did write about their travels uh so we pay tribute to this uh these landscapes uh and we try to reinterpret them uh in necklaces in bracelets sometimes you will identify uh, uh, a monument or a, an element of architecture uh, or um, you know the, the, the landscape uh, and the silhouette of a mountain um, combinations of colors that were very very uh, in fashion at the time so uh, that's going to be our little tour Thank you to my guests today Nicolas Boss as well as to Paul and Hortense for making this episode happen The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall to keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. <laughs>